doing something a little different. Well, not uh, the, the elders in the church asked me once a month, the first Sunday of every month, to engage in what we call a hot topic. And uh, so we'll get back into Revelation chapter 20 next week, as if that's not a hot topic in, it, in itself, nonetheless. Uh, if you are interested in a topic, and feel free to email me and let me know what topic you'd like. I've got a few things on the list right now. And uh, this morning, I'm going to start a little differently. I'm going to do is quote uh, one verse out of the psalm, Psalm 24.1. Then I'm going to quote a uh, church council in terms of the conclusion they drew based upon that verse and other verses. And then the third thing I'm going to quote would be something in contradistinction to that. It would be kind of a worldly thought from a very popular playwright. And so I hesitate to open by saying, hear now the word of God, because it's only Psalm 24, 1 that is the word of God. Then after that, it will be from Heidelberg, and then after that, it'll be just the opposite. So just so we get an idea of what's going on here, here are the three quotations. The first is from King David, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness, the world, and those who dwell therein. Then we see a quotation from the theological faculty at the University of Heidelberg. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then finally, a quote from contemporary playwright, Brian Clark, who wrote, it was a title of a play he wrote in a movie, Whose Life Is It Anyway? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we engage in this very delicate and difficult topic that you would grant us wisdom from above. It is difficult enough, Father, as you well know, knowing the weakness that we as creatures through the sin that has befallen us have trying to be wise, but we do pray for your wisdom. We do pray, Father, that we would walk away understanding more fully this world that you've created and our role in it as we seek to be wise people glorifying you in everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do enter into this morning's hot topic with a little bit of trepidation. I'm a little you know, some things I feel a little more confident about, other things I get a little nervous about. This is no easy topic. What we're talking about this morning is not an easy topic. I think one of the most difficult tasks any minister will ever grapple with is helping other people navigate or traverse through end-of-life decisions. This is something that if you're in the ministry, you get that phone call, and oftentimes it's somebody Who's, helped, who's got an elderly person, and they've got to make a decision that's going to affect whether they live or die. And that's a hard thing, you know, and I'm on the other end of the line, and all of a sudden I'm feeling the weight of that decision. I don't think there are many categories in this life that reveal to us the limitations that we have as creatures than this idea, this unenviable task that we have when we're forced into a decision. These are difficult things to do. I think it's painful. I don't want to approach this as merely an academic thing. It is a very, very painful endeavor, even for the most wise 
even for the most godly person. The world, on the other hand, seems to be very confident in this issue that we're going to engage in. They, they seem to have found their legs when it comes to this sort of stuff, or at least they think they have found their legs. But I'm going to tell you this, and it's been my observation, and maybe yours as well, giving worldly thinkers the power to determine life and death matters is like giving alcohol and car keys to a teenage boy. It's devastating. It's foolish. Euthanasia, that word, just so you understand kind of what the word means, E-U means good, like a, like a eulogy means a good talk. Euthanasia, is the, the prefix U is good. Thanatos means death. This idea of a good death is what the topic here is. Along with that, you hear this phrase, physician-assisted suicide. These are the things that are kind of, you know, in the fore of our thinking and our culture, and not just recently, but for a while. Now, now you may, you may think to yourself, well, you know, Pastor Paul, this is not my, on my top ten list of things that I need to deal with. I mean, I, I do get those phone calls, maybe you have, but not all the time. It's not like I get them every week. Every once in a while, though, you've got to deal with this. But I will tell you this, and this is how we're going to finish this message. Understanding the way the world thinks about this will be helpful in terms of you grappling with and grasping the ethos or the environment that you're living in. And you have to understand this, that the, the environment that you're living in has an effect upon you. I mean, the letters in the New Testament, whether it's, you know, the letter to Corinth or to the churches of Galatia, or Ephesus, those, those towns, when people got saved, would bring the thinking of the town into the church. And a lot of Paul's letters are going, you need to not bring the thinking of your culture into the church, you need to bring the thinking of the church into the culture. And we need to be aware of this, lest we find ourselves thinking the way the world thinks. And there aren't too many things, I would say, especially that, uh, alongside this topic that will reveal to us whether or not the world has gotten a hold of our psyches. And I'm here to tell you, Hollywood, and by Hollywood I'm talking about, you know, the media and movies and books and so, ha so uh, what have you, is not unclear in terms of the direction they think this should take. Every, every few years a major film comes out directing people like us to make decisions to allow other people who might otherwise live, maybe, maybe, maybe painfully, but as we're going to see, maybe not painfully, allow them to die. And not just allow them to die, but to actually kill them. Movies come out with this. The title of the sermon I just gave here is, Whose Life Is It Anyway? The the, uh, the answer to the rhetorical question here is, I mean, it's a telling title, right? Whose life is it anyway? Well, the, the, the implied answer to the rhetorical question is, my life is mine. It belongs to me. Well, that came out in the early 80s. It was first a play, then it became a movie, big movie. Then more recently, another movie came out called Million Dollar Baby, starring Clint Eastwood. He starred in it and directed it. 
And that film, which was partially based upon a true story, which a lot of you know, movies are, chronicled the life of a, of a woman f- prize fighter. And, and in that movie, the question was asked, are certain lives worth living? That's the question. And it was big. It got four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. So this is not some minor thing. They are trying to interject into our culture the idea that certain lives just are not worth living. Now, add to that, and some of you will remember this, around the same time, there was the Terry Schiavo issue. Anybody, does that ring a bell? And that became a big issue because it was a huge, long court case about a woman who was in a so-called vegetative state for a number of years, not apparently in any pain, and not being kept alive by a machine. But because of the state she was in, she had to be fed. Now, this is where you kind of get, you know, the difference, right? They didn't, they didn't pull the plug on a machine that was keeping her alive. What the courts decided to do was quit feeding her so she would starve to death. And it took days, by the way, for her to starve to death. And so that was the difference. The difference wasn't somebody is being artificially kept alive by a machine. It is somebody who's actually alive, but they've become, you know, and I don't want to get into all the details of the husband and the parents and all this stuff, but that's the argument. The argument there was, no, we're not putting her to, you know, we are, we're not just letting nature take its course. We are actually going to starve a person to death. And that's why this became a big court case. About 10 years ago, the National Library of Medicine published an article, and this isn't even a Christian organization, but they published an article addressing their concerns about this, just so you understand. And I, again, I don't want to be insensitive to this. I mean, you know, you, if people are in, you know, I don't want to be insensitive to, the fact that, insensitive to the fact that if people are in pain and death is inevitable, that that is not some easy thing to go through. But we have to understand at the same time the kind of collateral damage that this type of thinking will yield in a culture. And that's what this, you know, this organization, the National Library of Medicine, that's what they engage in. They say, look, if we open this door, we're going to have all sorts of problems. If we say it's okay to terminate people and not just let them die, there's going to be a mess that is coming with that. Now, just so you understand the difference here, you've got euthanasia, which is generally this idea of, of uh, you know, being put to death. Then you have physician-assisted suicide, where you're kind of putting yourself to death, but with the aid of a physician. Then you've got a thing called passive euthanasia, and that is just kind of letting nature take its course. And those are three different things. Two are very similar, but the third one, passive, is the idea that, and we'll get to that in just a second, the idea that somebody is dying and they're just going to let that happen. And we'll get to that in just a second. But some of the concerns this organization had was the ease at which opening this door turned into a, you know, slippery slope. And not all, by the way, slippery slopes are fallacies. Because the idea, the way this was built, and the way you've probably heard it is, somebody who's terminally ill, who inevitably is going to die and is great pain, that person should be able to take their own life or have somebody help them take their own life. That's the way it's built. Now, I don't agree with that even, but that's the way it's built, and that's where you can kind of win the hearts of the culture. 
But what they found as they did their study on this was it moved way beyond that. It moved way beyond the idea that somebody is in great pain and they're at the end of their life. It actually included, and I quote, 70-year-olds, if you're 70 or older, and I quote, who are tired of living. Now, you might go, well, still, it's their life. But imagine now, and in case you don't realize this, a lot of people who are over 70 in a lot of places throughout the world, including our country, can easily be made to feel a burden to their children. And so they can be guilted into taking their own lives because they're just tired of living. And I, you know, I, I'm not really enjoying my life. And my children don't visit me. They don't like me. So I'm going to go ahead and take my own life. Now, that concerned this organization, but what also concerned this organization was that euthanasia was now being applied to children. And here's another very ambiguous quote. They are euthanizing, and this was in the Netherlands, euthanizing children with, quote, no hope of a good quality of life. I mean, can you get more ambiguous than that? How good does your life have to be? You understand kind of the ancillary damage here, the collateral damage. When you start opening this door, all of a sudden you have the elderly who are made to feel a burden who might take their own life, and you have children who are not living up to some standard in terms of what you're hoping they will achieve, and now they're vulnerable and victims to this. Now, let me just say a couple of things up front here, just because I do feel like as a church, we should have, as Christians... We should understand this. You know, we live, in a, we live in a world where everybody has an opinion. And I know that you, as Christians, if you engage in some type of, in the marketplace of ideas, that people are going to tell you to keep your religion out of it. But they, they're per- perfectly comfortable putting their religion, whatever it is, into it. But I will say this, when it comes to, the, when it comes to wisdom, that you, as a Christian of all people, should be wise. That you, of all people, should understand these types of things. This is one of the things we have to contribute to the world in which we live, a godly wisdom, which, by the way, right now is in short supply. So at some level, we need to understand these types of things. But at the same time, I I need to recognize my own limitations. I'm not speaking as a doctor. We have an elder who's a doctor, and I'm sure he'd be more than happy to answer certain questions. I don't want to embarrass myself by making medical observations, but I will tell you this, that even the medical community is not canon when it comes to things like ethics and metaphysics. And what I mean by that is even the medical community can't really tell you in any authoritative way when life begins or when life ends. They've changed their views. There was a time when the medical community said heartbeat and respiration. If a person's heart is beating and they're breathing, they're alive. And if their heart stops and they're not breathing, they're dead. Well, that's changed. Now you have things like heart, uh, brain waves. You have response reflex. You have you know, the ability. Here's one. This isn't even a medical observation, but you'll hear this both in the abortion issue and in the euthanasia issue, sentience. Have you guys heard this one? I believe a person is actually a person when they're sentient. You know, it's intimidating because it's a big word and you don't understand what it is. And I've heard many people get up in there and like, well, I believe life begins when you're sentient. Okay, well, what is sentient? It means that you're aware that you are. 
You are aware that you exist. Well, let me ask a couple of questions right up front. And I don't want you to be unhealth, have an unhealthy skepticism, but I do want you to be healthy in terms of your critique, in terms of the way the world thinks. Number one is, how could you possibly know if somebody else knows they exist? How could you know that? Secondly, even if you could know that somebody else knows they exist, why is that the criteria for whether or not somebody is alive or not? What, what mountain did some prophet come and tell you that? See, you're, you're making decisions as if you're God when you're making those types of decisions. I remember doing a wedding of a buddy's do, uh, son, and um, the guy, my buddy was pretty well-known in the industry, and so he, he was a great guy, but he was surrounded by people in the industry by, by that, you know what I mean by the industry, like movies and what have you, who have like an undue confidence, you know, they're pretty, that, in, that field, people can be pretty full of themselves. And we were out to dinner, it was at Catalina Island, and one of the guys was a doctor, and we got into the issue of abortion and euthanasia. And he very quickly said, well, I'm a doctor. As if right away, you know, like the genuflect, you know, in this conversation. And I go, and he, then he started telling me, you know, well, I do believe that, you know, life begins when you're sentient. And it was almost like conversations over. And I asked him the very things I just asked you. How could you possibly know if somebody else is sentient, and why would that be the beginning of life? And I don't mean to sound, I don't want to boast as if, oh, I won this argument, but he had no answer to that. Yeah, he said something like, well, that's above my pay grade. And you know what? It is. (laughs) But we have to understand that when people make statements like this in terms of the beginning of life and the end of life, these are not merely medical decisions. They're metaphysical decisions. They're ontological decisions they're ethical decisions. They're, it goes way beyond the idea that you're just looking at a screen and something is happening on the screen because you have you know, sensors connected to the person's brain and, and heart. All this to say, I think we should all have a very healthy skepticism when people speak authoritatively about these types of things. I'm also not a lawyer, and so I don't want to get into, you know, I don't know if you guys have questions about the Shibo case and all that. I, you know, in terms of who gets to make decision, all that. So I'm not, I don't want to get into that. I have two points that I I want to make as we kind of wrap this up. But I do have to say this about this topic. I remember following that Terry Schiavo thing. And I found it very disquieting in terms of the aggressive nature of the people who, who didn't know Terry Schiavo, had nothing to gain or lose regarding her life, but very much wanted her dead. Aggressively talking about putting her to death. And it did make me think of what we read in Proverbs 8, and we open with that today. All those who hate me love death. I don't think I'm overstating the issue. When we come, and I'll get into that, and when we come to understand this idea of life and how precious it is, Life and death. Death has kind of been uh, whitewashed 
it's been uh, euphemized in terms of the culture in which we live. And let me just say this, that the tentacles of approaching life as if we own it, right? Whose life is it anyway? Mine. The tentacles of approaching life as if we own it has deep and devastating consequences. Not just in terms of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, but in terms of marriage, in terms of economics, the arts, politics. When we approach this life as if we own it, as if we're the creator, plan on there being a mess. We are to approach this life as if we are stewards of that which belongs to somebody else. That includes your own life. I mean, maybe, I know sometimes people are going through difficulty and they're being mistreated and abused by others. And I think sometimes, you know, like Jesus says, you turn the other cheek, you go the extra mile and so forth. But the idea behind what I'm, my point here is sometimes you have to recognize that if you're being abused, it is somebody who belongs to God that is being abused. That, that you are not your own. That you need to step out of who you are and go, is this other person's behavior justifiable in terms of the way they're treating me? Let me see if I can put it in another way. If you saw them treating somebody else that way, rather than you, would you say that's unacceptable behavior? Well, if you see them treating somebody else that way and arrive at the conclusion that that behavior is unacceptable, then you need to say the same thing when they're treating you that way. Because you and that other person don't belong to yourself, you belong to somebody else. And so we need to operate through this life even our own lives, as if we're taking care of that which belongs to somebody else. And that somebody else, who is God, has revealed to us the means by which he wants his stuff governed. And I'll tell you this, the more we're willing to do that, the better things are going to be. I want to finish with two considerations on this issue. One is, do the scriptures speak? to the ethics of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. Does the Bible even talk about it? And if so, on what side does it fall? Does the Bible have something to say about this? Secondly, does this have any bearing on our view of the heart of the Christian faith, i.e. the cross of Christ? See, I'm under the impression that any view that we have about anything somehow will be affected by the way we view the cross of Christ. Like, there... If, if I were the enemy of your soul, if I were, you know, my dear Wormwood, if I were writing the screw tape letters, I would try to confuse your sense of the way this world should work, primarily so that you wouldn't understand the necessity of the cross. And I think we'll, I'm going to finish with that thought. But first, euthanasia, I think, should be evaluated from a biblical framework on the outlook of death. In what context does the Bible present death? You know, I've done hundreds and hundreds of memorial services. And, you know, sometimes they open the mic. Not something I always advise. <laughs> they open the microphone and people get up there. 
and they start talking about death, and, you know, and they're like quoting the Lion King or something, right? It's the circle of life and stuff, you know, and, and uh, we had an elder years ago, Dan Kobosh, he's still actually kind of pastoring a church in, um, in Arizona, and I remember him kind of hitting me with this. He goes, you know, people all talk about death being part of life and all this stuff. He goes, death is not part of life. Death is the end of life. Death is anti-life. And we need, we need to quit painting it as if it's just part of this natural circle that takes place. Friends, we have to understand a biblical framework of death is that death is a curse. A biblical framework of death is that it is an enemy. Not something to kind of be viewed as just, hey, part of what happens. Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26, for he must reign till he puts all of his enemies under his feet. All right, these are the enemies. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So this general momentum of the he'd be better off dead declarations that we so often hear, we need to understand that the genesis of those declarations come from a very, very dark place. God is the giver of life. Jesus says of himself that he is the life. In contradistinction to that, the devil and his minions come to do what? To steal and to do what? to kill and destroy. So the general disposition that we have, I'm I'm backing way up here, the general disposition that we should have is life good, death bad. That should be kind of our default, our starting place. This idea that death is to be preferred should very much be the exception At the same time, there is a a comfort that the faithful can have when contemplating their own death. It's, you see, because the verse I just read, right? There's the last enemy to be what? Destroyed. All right? It's not to be embraced. It's not to be kind of massaged. We come to Christ because... He destroys it. You want to talk about euthanasia, a good death. It is the believer who, when they die, has a good death. It is the believer who believes in the one who has conquered death. If I could put it this way, they, they, they close their eyes here and they open their eyes in the favored presence of the living God. See, that's, that's a good death. And it's promised to all who call upon his name. And I also think this, you know, just to add to the mix here, I think it is very biblical to make the act of dying more bearable through medication. I'm, I'm a full advocate of that. We read in Proverbs 31.6, give strong drink to him who is perishing. And wine to those who are of bitter heart. This idea that 
you know, God is kind of going, look, I'm gonna, I have so governed the medical world that I'm going to make this as comfortable for you as I possibly can. I remember listening to Jay Sidlow Baxter. He's a, I think he was actually from Australia, he passed away, but he was an elderly man giving a message at a church I was at at the time. And he was very old, and so he was kind of like, you know, my days are numbered. And he made, he made the statement, and I'll, you know, I'll never forget it. He's like, I'm not, I'm, not afraid, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not terribly thrilled about dying. But as time has gone on, God has graciously given us the means by which these things could be handled more easily than in ancient days. The scriptures have numerous records of the faithful accepting their deaths with dignity, ordering their estates, and seeking to grant wisdom to their progeny. To to kind of go, look at it, I know my days are numbered. I'm going to get my affairs in order. I'm going to sit down with you, and I'm going to tell you, young people, what I want your life to look like. The Bible has a lot of that. The Apostle Paul appeared to resign to the imminence of his own death. You know, in his last letter, right, he wrote this, 2 Timothy 4, 6 and 7, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. I mean, he's kind of going, look it, it's, it's coming to an end. I think the resigning to the inevitability of one's death appears to be an acceptable biblical ethic. I think to go look at it. When God's ready to take me, I'm ready to go. Many of you know I worked at a retirement home, volunteered at a retirement home for 25 years, and they were almost all widows. And, you know, and many of them had been Christians for like 90 years, you know, and it was a real interesting you know, because when I started doing that, it was like 1990, and there were women in that group who remembered Kitty Hawk, right? That's the first flight, and then landing on the moon. Like, they remembered both of those things happening. And now here they're, you know, going through the amazing, you know, 20th century, and now here they are in a retirement home. And that's one of the reasons why when I hear about people being neglected who are elderly and kind of this, I mean, that's, you know, some of them never would get visited, and they felt to be a burden and what have you. But the faithful ones there, and they understood. But, the, you know, there was this very common theme. I remember Eva May. Eva May, that's a name, right, out of the past. I always thought to myself, you know, names like Gertrude, you know, right, and Eva May. Who names their kid Gertrude? But then it dawned on me, if, I, if some of you had a baby and named that baby Gertrude, that would be really cute. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, Eva May, I mean, she would very confidently kind of go, look, at, you know, God has me here. I'm ready anytime he wants me, but he has me here. And so she was like very limited in what she could do, but she could pray. And she was an encouragement to me and so forth. But it was this idea that, you know, when God's ready to take me, I'm ready to go. And although I don't think it's explicitly stated in Scripture, I think it's safe to conclude that you need to continually buck against what appears to be unavoidable. Even though, I think as we're going to see, our prayers and our desires should always be toward life and healing, 
for one to make the decision, and I'll put it this way, using the way this word the way Paul uses it, this word nature, I'm not talking as a naturalist, but this idea of letting nature take its course should not be considered unethical. Now, this is where it gets really difficult. Those same women, I remember those that I learned a lot in that group, you know, doing it every week for 25 years. And I remember there came a time, I don't remember how long ago it was, there came a time when somebody who I really loved got really sick and decided not to go through the difficulty of all the cancer treatments. And I remember thinking, what? Why, why would you not do that? That was new to me. It was a new thought that, they didn't, that she didn't want to go through all the difficulty of chemotherapy and radiation. And in, and in those days, it was even worse than it is now because they couldn't really isolate things. They would just kind of blast you with it, you know. And I, had, I was trying to get my arms around this. And I went, so I went to my Bible study. You know, I got my 12 widows there who were all 85 to 100 years old. And I asked them, I go... If you guys got cancer, how many of you would go through the treatment of chemotherapy or radiation or whatever? And not one of them would at 85 to 100 years old. They, they were like, well, if I was 50, if I was 55, 60, you know. But right now, their, their thinking was, I would rather have three good years than five terrible years. I get that. And I think, I think that's it an acceptable decision for them to make. Where you kind of go, look at I'm here we are. You see now where it gets kind of tricky? You see where it can get kind of difficult? Because, you know, you're kind of going, well, wait a minute, what if I go through this difficult time, and then as I go through it, God's going to give me another 20 years? You know, so you've got these, these are not easy choices to make. I think the idea of kind of going, look, and I'm being artificially kept alive by a machine, the idea of kind of going, look, at with no, ch- no chance of resuscitation, no chance of, you know, healing, and you go, and you kind of make the decision, you know what, I'm just, you know, let, let me go. I'm ready to go. Let nature take its course, I think, is an acceptable alternative based upon a lot of other things. You know, for, for some people it might not be, but you understand the difficulty of decision of the decision here weighed against kind of what's going on in our current cultural, like, trajectory. Now, this passive euthanasia is often very difficult to decide. But it's never been a matter of huge debate. This idea of letting nature take its course has never really been a matter of huge debate. Active euthanasia, the Dr. Kevorkian lethal injection, that's what used to be illegal, but now we're living in a culture where it's becoming acceptable. And I just want to parenthetically say this. In that movie, Million Dollar Baby, they were very clever in terms of the way they presented it because they presented part active and part passive. In other words, what they did was they disconnected her oxygen that's passive, because she's being you know, made to breathe through a machine, but they also gave her a lethal injection, which is active. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really clever of them to do it this way. 
And I remember when I first wrote the material I'm giving you right now, and it's, re, it's redone now, but when I was, I was re-looking at it, I realized I made this comment. I go, you got to be careful of the way the culture is going to present things to you because they're going to present things to you that are kind of half-truths. And when I, when I wrote this, I wrote, for example, the pedophiles of NAMBLA, the North American Men-Boy-Lover Association, in their effort to normalize pedophilia, if they ever came out with a movie, they, they would not come out with a movie with a 60-year-old man and a 4-year-old child because nobody's ready to accept that. What they would come out with is a movie about a, a youthful 23-year-old man and a mature 16-year-old. And interestingly enough, that exact movie did come out. I think it was called Call Me By Your Name. And that's exactly what happened. You're like, oh, no, we're going we're gonna to make this acceptable. Do you, let me ask you a question. Do you see that when it's coming your way? Do you understand that somebody's going, look, I'm going to get a foot in the door. You know, those of you who study sales, you know this. If you can get people to agree to a lesser, they're going to agree to eventually to a greater. What they teach you in sales is you need to get a lot of yes answers to your initial questions because then people get used to saying yes. And then when you go break out your checkbook and write the big check, you've already said yes so many times, you're just going to say yes again. But I hope we have the wisdom and to see that when it's coming in our direction. All this to say, that does the Bible countenance euthanasia? The answer is uniformly and unequivocally negative. Any active participation in the death of an innocent person, with wartime exceptions, is met with dire consequences according to the law of God. We recited it today, the sixth commandment, right? It's, it's the taking of an innocent life. And the very few accounts we see in Scripture of suicide or assisted suicide are all accounts of the ungodly. Just so you know, it's in the Bible. King Abimelech, the wicked King Abimelech, wanted help being put to death by his helpers because he didn't want it to go out that he was killed by a woman. Judas killed himself because of ungodly sorrow, ungodly sorrow which leads to death. The apostate King Saul, he wanted help in killing himself because he feared that the Philistines would abuse him. Now what happened there, if you study that story, the armor bearer who aided in his death went to David and said, yeah, you know, Saul wanted to be killed. I helped him kill himself. And what happened? You know what David did? Who do you think you are doing that? And David killed that guy. All this to say that either suicide or assisted suicide is clearly unbiblical. We are want to see any biblical warrant for suicide or assisted suicide. It should also be noted that the common arguments, and I'm, again, I, I write this down, and I don't want it to sound insensitive, all right? Because, you know, life is hard, and end of life is hard, right? But the Bible talks about our disposition toward that which is difficult. Right? We, I mean, that's just, you got to understand, it's just part of life. I mean, you, you, I hope you recognize that in your life, if you haven't had it already, you're going to have difficulty, and every last one of us, one way or another, is going to have to deal with end of life. But I don't think it's just in the terms of the persecution 
that James is writing, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. It's not as if God forgets people. It's, you know, going back to the retirement home, you could walk in there and go, here are a bunch of people that God has forgotten. He hasn't forgotten them. He's still sanctifying them. Not in a way we would all want to be sanctified. He's all continually drawing them closer to himself. I would argue that it's at the end of your life when you have no strength and even a lack of ability to think clearly that it becomes more readily apparent how desperately we need Christ. And it's, I mean, it is interesting because we, um, we, that just reveals what has always been true. You guys, let me, I have a pet peeve. I know maybe it'll, maybe you have a poster at home of this. So you don't have to go home and take it down. But the footprints, you guys know the one, the footprints in the sand? How many of you, just so I know if I have to explain it? All right, let me. Okay, the idea of the footprints in the sand is you got these footprints in the sand, and every once in a while there's, there's two sets of footprints, and then one set of footprints, and then two sets of footprints, and one set of footprints. And then, you know, that's the person who's having the dream or whatever it is kind of goes, where were you? You know, the two footprints are the person and God, right, walking. It's Christ. And then the person kind of goes, where were you when there were just one set of footprints? And, you know, it's kind of emotionally tugs on you when he says, those were the times I carried you. Right? And you're like, oh, no, that's kind of cool. When I'm going through a difficult time, Jesus. Let me tell you something. There is ever only one set of footprints. There are never two sets of footprints. But it becomes readily apparent at the end of our lives that there's just one set of footprints, and there's only ever been one set of footprints. Well, finally, how does, this, how does all of this affect your understanding of the cross? The current moral environment, we live in a moral environment that opposes the death penalty for convicted murderers, but we are very rapidly moving towards supporting the death penalty for those who are innocent yet incapable. How does that affect, you think, your understanding of the cross of Christ? Because I'm going to argue that it has devastating consequences when it comes to a proper view of that event which takes center stage not only in history but in all eternity, and that is the cross. The cross is a funny little symbol, isn't it? I mean... We wear crosses around our necks. But during the Roman Empire, what was a cross? Yeah, it was a symbol of execution. I mean, I would, I would dare say that if you wore a cross in the first century, it would almost be like kind of goth. It'd be like me wearing a, an electric chair or a guillotine around my neck. Okay? The cross was designed to kill people. And yet when the Roman Empire came to an end and the kingdom of God began to advance, we recognized the cross, not so much as an implement of human justice, but we should recognize the cross as an implement of divine justice. 
That's what the cross should be telling us. I mean, I know that it's become kind of romanticized, but it's a very deep symbol in terms of this idea of the cross when the Bible talks about the cross. It's talking about an implement of execution that happened to criminals. It's all about justice. When I'm arguing here, and as I was rereading my notes this morning, let me see if I can make this as clear as I possibly can. And that is, when we, th- when we live in a world where we think it is okay to put the innocent to death, and we live in a world where we think it's okay to allow those who are worthy of death to be set free, what becomes muddled in our thinking is this idea of justice. And justice is, a, is an attribute of God. God is just. And if I were the devil, I would want to make that as confusing as I possibly could because death is the just sentence for sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he died the death and suffered the just consequences due the humans for which he died. That's why 1 John 1.9 says he is faithful and what? Just. He's just because he did not ignore the sin. He's just because he sent a son to pay for the sin. And if I live in a world that doesn't understand justice because we're putting innocent people to death and allowing guilty people to go free, what is that going to tell me in terms of my understanding of my need for Christ in terms of the fact that I have sinned and the due consequences of sin is death? You and I deserve death. Maybe not civil death, but it is interesting that the way it's presented in the Bible is in a civil arena, right? Jesus died in the place of what? Criminals. Surrounded by criminals. And when we live in a world that doesn't acknowledge that, it muddies our understanding of the justice of God. Let me put it this way, and I don't mean to, we believe in two sacraments, so I'm not creating a sacrament, just so you know, Roman Catholics have seven, we have two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But let me see if I can compare this to a sacrament. Death is a sign, sacraments are signs and seals, right? Death is a sign reminding us of the consequences of sin and it soberly bears the seal of God's divine justice. When we don't have a right understanding of life and death, we're going to have a confused understanding of salvation. If we don't understand baptism and the Lord's Supper, if we don't understand the sacraments, we're not going to understand the attributes of God to which those sacraments point. If we don't understand the curse of death, if we don't understand the justice of death, if we don't understand that, then we're not going to understand that the just died for the unjust. We're not going to understand our need for Christ. We're not going to look at the law of God as the Apostle Paul looked at the law of God and then look at ourselves and say this, O wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this body of death? And if we don't live in a world where people, by the grace of God, ask that question, who will save me from this body of death, 
we will certainly fail to enjoy the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray. We pray for all those who have been victimized by this ungodly act that is kind of getting legs, not only in our culture, but in the world in which we live. We do pray, Father, that you would overturn the folly of human thinking that views death as such a readily accessed option for people who are going through difficult times. Help us, Father, not to be insensitive to those difficult times, but at the same time, let us not take matters into our own hands, recognizing that you are the one who owns all things, including our very lives. I pray for myself, I pray for all who would hear this message, that we would impart wisdom, and that we would recognize, Father, that the bigger issue here is the recognition of the justice of the cross, because those are eternal decisions, and fathers, we just pray that that would go out into all the world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.